Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. So, Jeff, we're not alone. You've invited somebody to the chatteroo. I have. I hope that's okay. Of course. Uh, so, we have my friend and the absolutely brilliant climate scientist, uh, Emily Shuckborough, who is director of Cambridge Zero, which is an ambitious initiative of Cambridge University around climate science. She uh, also worked at the British Antarctic Survey. Um, and I first met her on a climate march in 2000. Nine, I think. Is I that think right? It was 2009, it was, yes. Uh, and and she uh, has been very kind enough to give up some time to talk to us. Emily, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, no, it's always a pleasure, Ed. I feel like you're slumming it with us a little bit because you, you wrote a, a book with the king. I did. And, and how does, how does that, that work? Do you type and he producers. dictates or do you dictate and he types? <laughs> <laughs> actually, there was another author as well, Tony Juniper. Oh, so he um, did the typing. <laughs> no, actually, you know what? Um, uh, the King was really involved. So it wasn't, you know, everyone always assumes that we wrote it and he just signed off with it. But, uh, you know, this is a topic that he's hugely knowledgeable about. So he was really involved in, in every aspect of the book. And are, are there any characters from the old man of Loch Nagar in the book? <laughs> no but i did the, so the book is a ladybird book yes. um and so there's um text and pictures you know it, it, that in the traditional ladybird style um and so what i'm you know without sharing competences that i'm probably not supposed to share but i, but I one of my distinct memories was um there's a, a section of the book that talks about past climate change ice you know where we've moved in and out of ice ages and the picture associated with that is of um, some, uh, you know, stone Neanderthal attacking a woolly mammoth. <laughs> and uh, one of the comments from the king was that the woolly mammoth looked a bit passive. <laughs> the artist had to go back and make the woolly really mammoth cool. look a bit more. <laughs> you need your woolly mammoths being aggressive. I mean, they're not yeah. passive. They're not passive aggressive. They're, not passive. We're, we're, <laughs> they're just aggressive, aggressive, aggressive. Now, the reason we're having you on, Emily, is Polly's nice to see you, but also because we have just come off a year which has um, broken all records and not in a good way for temperature and i actually thought this before christmas i thought it would be good to talk to you just about the significance of this uh because it sort of it, it kind of was covered a little bit this week but obviously there's lots of other news around so just to start with could you tell us sort of 
your verdict on the 2023 kind of global temperatures as you would see it as a as a climate scientist yeah i mean i think from a climate science perspective you can probably sum it up in one word which is that it was crazy i mean it was ridiculously hot um so the the numbers that have been coming in over the last week when we've done you know there's been an assessment of um the year is that it was about 1.45 maybe 1.46 degrees centigrade above the pre-industrial period so above 1850 to 1900 um by a long way the warmest year on on record um and in part that's because of some of natural changes which perhaps we can come on to 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 talk about but predominantly that's because of human induced climate change can i just say just jeff centigrade well, I was Centi- going to say this. Centigrade. I, I make centigrade. I'm, I'm Jeff make... and I have been having a long-running row, Emily, and, about yeah. centigrade versus Celsius. I'm sorry. This, oh, that, that, it that... should be Celsius. No, because... no, I'm with you. I just think centigrade <laughs> is this silly made-up word which denies Anders Celsius is his know, moment of glory. Really Cel- you know what? Even as I was saying centigrade, I was thinking I should really say Celsius. Oh, sorry, I, I sort of channeled my centigrade beams into your head. Anyway. <laughs> I was, I was going to ask, um, is, is, is there any sense in its, I guess the cliche is turning the tanker around, is it that we're, we're not seeing the results of efforts yet but it, it will start to get better well which efforts i mean the problem well, is we're not making very many well efforts. i know we're not, i know we're not making in, and, and, and i know it falls vastly short of what it needs to be um but ed just came back from cop and you in some ways were quite encouraged by some of the things i mean that, that is a good maybe there's another way of asking that question emily which is if let's say global emissions start to fall Will that? Well, I mean, maybe you should say something about the rate of increase that we're seeing, because as I understand it, the rate of increase is significantly greater. But if if glow if if uh, emissions started to fall, will that slow? Could, could, would that slow the rate of increase? Well, I mean, maybe well, we're yes, getting ahead of, of ourselves. I mean, well, yeah. we might, I mean, of course, everything connects together. So, though so, you know, the temperatures respond to the amount of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. If you look. The amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is at a record level. It's four, no, last year was 419 parts per million in the atmosphere. And if you go back to those pre-industrial levels, um, it wasn't 419. It was more like 280 parts per million or maybe even a bit less. Um, so, you know, that's why we've got such high temperatures because yeah. we've got such huge amounts of um, greenhouse gases in the atmosphere and we're adding even more to the atmosphere every year. So it's not a question of it, it's getting worse before it's getting better. It's it's getting worse and it'll probably keep well, getting we don't, worse. Depends what happens, what we do, doesn't it? Just just say something about the scale of the increase. You said crazy. Yep. And then a little bit about the why, because it's there are other effects going on here, including El Nino, aren't there? Yeah. So, um, well... You know, let's say a few more things about 2023. It was the first time on record that every day of the year, in terms of the global average, exceeded one degree Celsius. <laughs> let's say Celsius, one degree Celsius above those pre-industrial levels. Um, and um, almost half the days of the year, 50% of the days, were more than 1.5 degrees Celsius warmer than those pre-industrial 
um, levels. And in fact, two days in November were more than two degrees Celsius warmer. So it really was incredibly hot and incredibly close to that 1.5 degree level that we're all concerned about and was written into the Paris Agreement as the level we want to avoid. Now, just in a single year or a single day or a single month, um, exceeding 1.5 degrees doesn't breach what was generally conceived of being the Paris Agreement threshold. But in terms of where we are taking into account those daily, monthly, yearly variations, it's estimated that in that kind of longer term picture, we're at about 1.25 degrees Celsius of warming. So that's the number to compare with the 1.5, but we're still getting horribly, horribly close to that threshold. So that's the kind of the status of where we are. Um, Some of the um, reasons why this last year was particularly hot, and indeed, actually, we anticipate that next year will, or this coming year, the one that we're in now, 2024, will be even hotter, um, is because there's this natural cycle that occurs um, that many people will have heard of called El Nino. And El Nino means that in some years, um, it's much uh, hotter as a global average than in the opposite phase of that cycle, which is called La Nina. And um, that means that, you know, when in an El Nino year, you typically would have somewhere up to about 0.2 degrees Celsius additional warming from that natural phenomenon. So you do get warmer years um, in those in those instances. And that's a natural process. And that's why I say that in terms of the longer term average, we're more on that sort of 1.25 degrees Celsius zone at the moment. And can we tell, because in the last El Nino, the the last record global temperature, as I understand it, was 2016, and that was also an El Nino. Can can we tell, is there a way of separating out the climate effect and the... the, Yeah, yeah. so that's what I said. So imagine... Imagine having a straight line going upwards and then wiggles on top of that straight line. Yeah. <laughs> then the El Nino bit cycle is the wiggles. And um, a wiggle going up in the last El Nino didn't go up as high as it is in this El Nino because it's on top of that, you know, steep hill going upwards. And as I say, it's about 0.2 degrees Celsius is the difference that it makes. So it's not a huge difference, but it's significant. Uh- and actually, the other thing that's worth bearing in mind about this is that um, you might remember there was a period in um, about ooh, uh, 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 about a de- decade ago, or maybe slightly less, when people, uh, well, p- actually, particularly Nigel Dawson used to, and, and the Daily Mail used to say, oh, climate change has stopped, um, and there's been a hiatus, and it's, you know, this is all nonsense. And, and that's, you know, a, a, an effect. We will, after we've had this warmer period, we will go into a, a slightly cooler period as part of that natural cycle. And we absolutely right. should not think that that means that climate change has stopped. It just means that we're part of this cycle. And the number to be looking at is that 1.25 number, because that's and, the one that's and, most important. And can we tell what the kind of acceleration effects are? I mean, one of the things I saw on the BBC report about this was that we're exceeding the global average, I think, for 1990 to 2020 as well. So... Does it seem like it's getting faster, the the rise in warming, or do we not know that yet? 
Um, I think, yeah, I wouldn't want to actually say yeah. that because it's quite difficult to separate out those those features. But what is definitely the case is that the risk of extreme events, which is the things that are most impactful, so the risk of, um, you know, severe heat waves or the risks of floods or the risks of wildfires and etc. Um, as you, so in a sense, the global average temperature is. It's a really useful single indicator, but it's not the thing that's most impactful. And those extreme events go up. The risk of those goes up faster than the risk of the average conditions. And and, um, and so, it, and we've sorry. seen that playing out around the world, right? We've yeah. seen in the last couple, you know, the last couple of years. It seems like every, pretty much every day, somewhere around the world, there's um, yet more um, of some devastating extreme. Uh, weather condition occurring. And just to sort of clarify this, is this what is predicted by your model, this temperature rise, by the modelling? Is it hard? People seem to say, I think this is at the top end of the modelling. Does it suggest something unexpected is going on? I mean, I, I don't, I, you know, the, the, the beyond the kind of obvious, um, uh, you know, effects of, of, of more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and greenhouse gases. I mean, what, what's your sense about that? So my sense is that actually the modelling um, has been pretty consistently accurate, if I'm perfectly honest, um, in terms of our projections and what's actually played out in terms of the temperatures. Um, the models themselves don't predict exactly some of these you know, natural ups and downs. They predict that long-term yeah. pathway, and, and they've been pretty accurate. The thing that's not included in the models, and we know it's not included in the models, um, which is probably the most concerning aspect of starting to move towards these higher temperatures, um, is that we know there are many potential tipping points in the climate system, and generally the physical processes that are associated with those tipping points are not properly included in the models. Um, and so that's the aspect that's probably of most concern in terms of un the weaknesses, if you like, of the models in terms of predicting the future. Can you tell us a bit more about those tipping points? Yeah, so, um, so the one that's probably most at risk um, are coral reefs. And so as we move above 1.5 degrees of warming, um, it's almost certain that the vast majority of the warm water coral reefs around the world will be severely affected. And there's a real concern that they might pass the tipping point. Um, and that in itself would be devastating for the coral reefs, but that has huge global implications. So there's something like half a billion people who directly or indirectly their livelihoods depend on those on those coral reefs. So, so you know, it is a really major concern. So that's one, um, but probably the the closest to being a really major tipping point. Um, the other, you know, another example of a tipping point, which is something that I've studied a lot, um, are the ice sheets covering Greenland and West Antarctica, and that's an instance where we know when the world has been, you know, not not much more warmer than it is today so if you go back into the actually our woolly mammoth um <laughs> eras so that sort of you know go back into the distant past the world has been in different climate states 
those different climate states have been um, not because of human activities, obviously, um, but because of changes in the orbit of the Earth about the sun. Um, but if you go back to the last time the Earth was as warm as it is today, which is about 125,000 years ago, um, sea levels were much, much higher than they are today. So about six to 10 metres higher than they are today. And that was because those ice sheets in the polar regions, Greenland and, and West Antarctica, weren't intact. So we got good evidence from the past that as you warm the world up, those ice sheets pass the tipping point. Okay. And so that's you know another concern. And then there's, you know, then, then there's a host of other ones in terms of the overturning circulation of the ocean, in terms of the Amazon rainforest, in terms of the permafrost and, and potential methane release from the permafrost in the Arctic and so forth. And those are probably the biggest concerns because once those have been set in train, they're tipping points for a reason because you can't easily turn them back again. Ed mentioned um, b before that you had led the study group on the Antarctic. Is, is that right? Uh, yeah, I worked at the British Antarctic Survey, yes. So how, how long were you there for? For a decade. I was leading um, the oceans group, the polar oceans group. So we were studying um, particularly the ocean around um, Antarctica. And so um, British Antarctic Survey is based in, is headquartered in Cambridge, but then we'd undertake field um, research in Antarctica, or in my case, it was on the, on the ship in the Southern Ocean. And um, so some of the things that we were looking at was uh, that interaction between the warming oceans around Antarctica and the integrity of the sea ice and also the ice sheets. Because in Antarctica, the ice sheets are predominantly melting from below as the warm water from the ocean gets underneath um, the, the uh, ice sheet and melts it from underneath. What difference does it make to you, like as a, as a scientist? Obviously, mm -hmm. you're, you're used to uh, data, empirical data. Uh, what, what what difference does it make to you personally when you see it with your own eyes? Oh, you know, it's hugely important to to see those sort of things. And anybody who's undertaking any scientific research, if you just sit at a computer and model it, you don't get the real understanding compared to if you're actually. Um, you know, actually visibly uh, looking at some of the critical processes. And actually in terms of one of, one of the scientifically, one of the most crucial aspects to understand is the scientific uncertainty on some of the data. Um, and you can only really understand that if you're actually taking part of, of actually um, taking the measurements. So there's a real thing about if you're an oceanographer, you have to get your your feet wet. <laughs> and talk to us a little bit about what's happening with the oceans and Antarctic sea ice. Oh, well, yes, actually, I, I mean, honestly, the oceans and the ice have also been crazy. I think that is the right word, unfortunately, um, this last year. So sea surface temperatures have been at absolute record highs globally. Um, and uh, particularly, actually, in the North Atlantic um, have been extremely extremely high um which is of real concern and that probably is something that wasn't entirely predicted we don't really quite understand why they've been so high and antarctic sea ice has been exceptionally low 
Um, it's actually right at the moment, it's slightly recovered because it goes through an annual cycle of melt and recovery and so forth. And compared that compared to how it was in the second half, or well, actually through most of last year, where it was really extremely um, low, it's not quite as low as it was. Um, again, not a full understanding of why it was so off the scale this year in terms of the amount of um, melt, but uh, it's thought probably is due to the interaction with the warming ocean waters, the upper layers of the southern ocean being warmer, and that's been the cause of that really substantial melt in Antarctica. And it's significant because we've seen huge melt in the Arctic in terms of sea ice over recent decades, but that hadn't been the case so much in Antarctica. So the fact that you know, Antarctica really seems to have slipped into a different regime this year is really significant. 
a world that's fit to be inhabitable. I tell you, one of the I've got a, a postdoc at the moment who's been undertaking some research over the last couple of months, looking at identifying um, which regions of the world um, in the near future will be uninhabitable because the temperature and humidity levels will have exceeded the level that is physiologically capable of supporting human life. That's how bad it is. It's crazy, crazy, crazy. That's my word to describe it all, crazy. And have you have you ever tried to make sense of that craziness? Because surely when you're sat having a conversation with people, you're able to impress through your expertise the, the need for urgent action have you got any thoughts on the the gap between the reception you get when you give people this information and then the subsequent inaction not really i mean maybe ed can help us out why i mean i i i think people don't want to believe it and so don't i think it's just plain straight denial um i tell you one of my so the, you know, so, sorry to be depressing, but I am a bit in a depressed mood about all of this. Yeah. The moment. Um, and the um, so last, before Christmas, I was with my um, daughters watching the latest David Attenborough series, that amazing um, Planet Earth. And my ten-year-old, after watching it, um, was very sad, and she said to me, "Mummy, um, I don't see the point in living." And I was like, oh, my goodness, me, I've got some kind of mental health crisis going on here. But for- fortunately, she didn't mean it personally. Um, but she And she went on to describe that what she was saying was she didn't see the point in humanity um, when, as a species, you know, we're treating the world so badly. What is the point in us being on the planet if all we're doing is destroying it, which is you know, a pretty mature thing, actually, for a 10-year-old to say, but also pretty devastating, right? So, mm. you know, and I do kind of feel it's that, right? We know full well what we are doing to the world. We know full well what the risks are. The science has been there for 30, 40 years now. Um, and the, the you know, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change couldn't have been clearer in its report last year when it said that there is a rapidly closing window of opportunity to secure a sustainable and livable future for all. Um, A rapidly closing window of opportunity, that is precisely what it is, and it's precisely what the world is not responding to. Um, I I honestly don't know what more more I can do as a scientist to try and make that clear. And, okay, it's hard to sort of create any optimism out of this and i I would i don't want to falsely do that and it's good that you've been honest with us just going back to what we said a lot earlier i mean if the world manages to sort of as they say bend the curve and start to reduce global emissions i mean that is clearly the first and most important step i mean it's not enough on its own because they've got to be reduced and reduced substantially um i mean presumably you know 1.5 Nobody should give up on 1.5, but it's obviously incredibly challenging. But, you know, every extra 0.1 of a degree or 0.01 of a degree means things are worse, doesn't it? And so, therefore, you know, we should, and I think, you know, lots of people made this point. I mean, yeah, I mean, because we can't give up. 
And I'm not no, saying you're saying we give can't. up. No, we can't. I'm not. I'm absolutely 100. percent I know not you're not saying that. We, I know we you're not saying that. Up. I'm saying we absolutely can't give up because if we do yeah. give up, then that goes to my daughter's yeah. point of what's the point in humanity, right? So we really give up on everything if we give up. Um, but um, I, so so IPCC um, was also really clear that there are low cost feasible solutions that exist today that are not being implemented. So, you know, it is not at all impossible. We could be implementing those low-cost feasible solutions now. We're not doing that, but we could be. And um, so we're not beyond the stage at which it's possible to turn this whole juggernaut around. We really could be creating a better future for all that sustainable and livable future for all if only we put in place concerted action and there are many we you know i've talked about tipping points in the climate system but there are also many tipping points in the response system if you like in that that we could also be enacting and some of them we've already seen happen so the the uptake of um, solar energy around the world yeah. has been vastly actually, including greater in than the we U- had, including in, in the UK last year, actually, including in the UK. I mean, yeah, so, households. I mean, yeah, Sorry. yeah, exactly. So that's a you know a positive tipping point. Um, we might be seeing a similar positive tipping point in terms of electric vehicles and battery technologies. So if we can enact those positive tipping points in terms of technology, innovation, and um, the changes that we make to our lifestyles in in response, then we can make rapid change in the right direction. And so what seems like impossible actually can be turned around very rapidly if we manage to um, uh, tip some of those elements. Now, it's very difficult to tip those elements on technology or on the way in which we live our lives if we don't have the appropriate supporting policy framework. There's a lot that policy can do to create conditions to enable those tipping points, societal tipping points or economic tipping points or technological tipping points. And that's where we really need to have um, a conservative coordinated national and international effort what sort of things would you like to say um well at a national level i i think it's very clear that we you know we well you know ed better comment comment on this than me in many ways but it's very clear that we we know the sort of things that need to yeah. be done at the national level and it is not approving new oil and gas licenses in the north sea it's about pushing in place the infrastructure and that includes the training for jobs of the future um for a um energy systems that is dependent on our own homegrown renewable energy um, rather than importing um, carbon intensive energy from overseas. Uh, You know, just doing that in itself would make a major difference to our our UK um, response to climate change. I'm thinking quite a lot about your sort of point about why hasn't it happened? And obviously there's lots of reasons and there's political interests and each country's got its own uh, sort of, you know, the, the, climate, the thing about climate is it's the ultimate challenge to politics, isn't it? Because it's these are long-term impacts. I mean, they're short-term impacts too, but they're m- most importantly long-term impacts. And politics is 
constrained by short-term cycles. I'm not making excuses, but this explanation. I think sort of one of the things that's interesting to me, though, and I don't know whether this accords with what you think is, it's not like the world isn't doing anything. I mean, the world is doing some things. It's just, it's just, and so some of the kind of, you know, some of the worst kind of potential, some of the higher temperatures, the sort of four or five degrees now look unlikely. That's it's not meant as a consolation, but it's, I think it's the truth. Uh, but the point is that it's just the world is so way short of what the science demands, basically. Yeah, and we've just been talking about some of the things that, yeah. that have happened in terms of solar energy yeah. and battery yeah. technology and so forth. So, no, it's absolutely not the case that the world hasn't done anything. Um, and just the very fact that we've got a global agreement to keep temperatures well below 2 degrees yeah. with an ambition to keep them below yeah. 1.5 degrees. I mean, that is, that you know, hugely positive, but it's just not translating fast enough through to what's required in terms of, of the climate system itself. That's the problem. Something I wanted to ask you about is, um, do, do you still come across people, like amateur scientists? So, for example, yesterday I was reading the magazine that comes with a paper on a Saturday and they send two people with opposing points of view out for dinner to see if they can find some common ground. And they had somebody who understands the severity and the urgency of the climate crisis. And then some guy who isn't a scientist, but, you know, likes to dabble in his spare time and he's... Uh, He's done his own modelling. Do you, do you come across people like that? Um, yes. I mean, I guess, so So that sort of um, real climate scepticism with having uh, amateur scientists or actually often, you know, in a, on occasions not even amateur scientists um, really trying to deny the science of climate change, that, that you know, if I roll back, 15 years ago. In fact, actually, when we were doing that climate march um, in 2009, um, Ed, there really was quite a lot of that. And I used to spend an awful lot of my time. It was a bit like, you know, as a um, university lecturer marking some students really awful, um, <laughs> awful assignment and trying to find exactly where all the errors are. I mean, it's really quite soul destroying to do that um, and to have to go in and try and explain why they've actually misunderstood some fundamental part of the science. Um, that doesn't really happen so much any longer. I've not had, I mean, I'm sure that there are, you know, people who come up with their wacky theories as to why we've got, you know, tens of thousands of the scientists around the world have got it wrong, but uh, they don't really have the same traction as they as they once did, um, unfortunately, because the, the Evidence is just so overwhelmingly strong from multiple different directions. We have climate models that tell us what's happening now and into the future. We have literally millions of observations across all different parts of the climate system. So it's very difficult to um, try to come up with some amazing alternative hypothesis as to why um, actually, despite us putting large amounts of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere each year and then being at record highs and that, that being you know, well understood science in terms of how that would re result in higher temperatures that somehow magically there's some other cause of the increase in temperatures I mean it just doesn't, it's just not plausible at this, at this stage so um, 
for the most part, I'm sure that there are some people who, you know, have their wacky theories. That's true in, in every aspect of life, isn't it? But for the most part, they don't really have the traction any longer that they once did. Well, um, maybe then, you know, this is a conversation where we in some ways have struggled to find very much optimism. Maybe there is a, a slight cause for yeah, optimism. No, no, I think that's true. But um, and so it, I, I maybe maybe I maybe I'm being too hard on the scientific scientific community because the fact that we've got to that stage where there isn't at, at least in this country actually I have to say that's not it's not necessarily true everywhere around the world I think there's still quite large amounts of scepticism in some parts of the United States um, but uh, at least in this country I you don't really see scepticism associated with the science any longer. Well, look, Emily, it's been a very sobering conversation, but but also a very important conversation. Um, the fight goes on. Uh, you're doing incredibly important work. Thanks so much for joining us. No, thank you. Well, that was a hard conversation. Yeah, it was a hard conversation. I mean, in a way, it's it's very sobering to hear it from a sober scientist, isn't it? Yeah, and just imagine how frustrating it is to be dealing with evidence day in, day out like that and the stark reality of the situation and and still to be faced with such inaction. But look, I guess one of the reasons I was keen to have the conversation is it's, I just think it's important not to let these things sort of pass by and just for it to become part of background noise. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, anyway, if people have got thoughts on the conversation uh, or on what they want us to talk about on our chatteroo or some people that we could have on as guests on our chatteroo, they should email us, Jeff, shouldn't they? Yes, we got the new email address set up. Do you want to say what it, it is? Last week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we, we, we've had some already, so um, good. we should uh, chat through some of that next week. But we really want to hear from you, please. Chatteroo some of that, yes. yes. It is chat at cheerfulpodcast.com. Chat at cheerfulpodcast.com. And, uh, um, and it was good to talk about woolly mammoths. You sort of sometimes bear a resemblance to a woolly mammoth, don't you? Thank you, thank you. You, you rarely <laughs> hear of a, a non-woolly mammoth. Well, like a mammoth. Yeah, do do we really need woolly in there as a differentiator? It's an interesting question. Maybe somebody can answer it. Maybe there are non-woolly mammoths. Or were, I should say. Polyester mammoths. I love mammoths. (laughs) Right. See you next week. Bye-bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.